Herman series at, at Rivercrest. Uh, as we launch into this thing together, I felt for a long time uh, like the best place for us to start would be to just really look at uh, some of Christ's most famous and, and often misunderstood and misinterpreted uh, teachings and, uh, that we have recorded in the New Testament. And so we're going to be looking at his parables uh, for the next few weeks. Ordinarily, our our plan and our method uh, will be just to preach straight through uh, books of the Bible. Uh, that will be our ordinary process uh, because honestly we believe that is the best way uh, to be sure that we preach and teach on the, what is called the full counsel of God or the whole counsel of God, uh, what Paul calls in Acts the whole counsel of God. That's our aim is to grow in our depth of understanding of who God is, uh, of, of what He has done for us and who we are now in Him. Uh, and, and so the best way to do that, uh, to do that as completely as we can, is to try and, and read His entire Word together, to try and hear that entire thing. So if you're willing to stick with us for the next 40 so or so years, that, that'll probably happen. So, I mean, not, not that there's a lot of fine print involved in this thing, but if you're here today, you're committed. So uh, we'll see you, you know, we'll see you when you have grandkids and stuff. Um, but ultimately, what I want, as, a, as a, people would say, what do you want? Is, I want as a pastor to look back on however long God gives me and be able to say, uh, as, as Paul was declaring to the church in Ephesus, that I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to any of you. And so when you go through the Bible, when you just go systematically through each book, it forces you oftentimes to, to teach on things that quite frankly are inconvenient at the time to deal with things that you don't want to deal with, or that if you had the option to avoid, you probably would. So ordinarily, uh, that will be our method, is to let God make us uncomfortable with His Word and, and, and let Him correct in those areas where we need to be uh, maybe, maybe reshaped a little bit. But for the next ten weeks or so, we're going to be waking our way through just under half of the parables uh, that Jesus taught His disciples. That's the plan, at least, so that's what we're going to try and do. The word parable, uh, it, if you don't know what that means, that word has the, has the meaning to come alongside. That, that's really what it means, is to come alongside. And so what we will see is that there's always a comparison happening there. This, the kingdom of God is like, or the ki- kingdom of God may be compared to, or, or something like that. Um, but we should see some sort of comparison, some sort of contrast here that Jesus is making. So let's get into this. I'd invite you actually to stand with me now uh, as we read God's Word together. This is Mark 4. We'll start with verse 1 and, and, and go through verse 9. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up. Since it, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, 
we, we would confess to you that there are a thousand distractions in our world, that each one of us comes in here with a whole list of things that might be competing for our attention. I, I confess that. I, I don't stand here with an undistracted mind. So Lord, I pray that what you would do is that you would work in spite of us. Uh, that you would speak to us through your word today. That you would help us to hear, help us to, help us to be as Jesus just said. Uh, give us the ears to hear. That we, we might walk from here with new resolve, ready to serve you as your people. Lord, we pray that. I pray that you wouldn't let my weakness as a communicator, don't let my stammering tongue stand between what you would say to us today. I pray that. I I beg that of you because we need you. By your Spirit, we need you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, uh, okay, so the gathering of a crowd uh, was a fairly common occurrence, even in the early ministry of Jesus. And and here, uh, Mark paints an interesting scene for us in in the first two verses. We see that Jesus is there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, and in that moment, we're told that a very large crowd gathered about Him. The sense here is that they are, that they are pressing around Him, that they are that they're coming in very tightly. Uh, they have heard of this man. Okay, he, he's he's just beginning his earthly ministry. They've heard of him, or at least something of him, and they are obviously curious about him, or they wouldn't be there. And so, just like we would do in this moment, they try to get as close as they possibly can uh, to him. Many believe that this is the largest crowd that Jesus had addressed up until this point in his ministry. And, and so, you see. Up until this, if you read back through Mark, read through Matthew, Luke, those that track with it, you'll see where he kind of bounced from town to town very quickly. He stayed on the move. And the parallel account of this teaching over in Luke 8, uh, he describes the crowd as being a gathering of people from town after town. And so there's this idea that, that wherever he goes, he picks up a new group of people who begin to kind of follow him. And if they hear he's somewhere, they want to go and see what he's doing. He's had a healing ministry. He's, he's been doing things that just people can't explain. And so they want to come and see what this guy is about. And, and then based on Matthew's account of this same exact uh, scene, we, we know that this is happening in the afternoon time. In fact, his morning, if you could have a bad morning as Jesus, it had not been a good morning. His, his mom and his brothers had come to try and try and bring him back home and go, look, I'm not sure what's going on right now, but you need to come on home. And he said, you know, this is the work. This is my food is to do the work of my, of my father. And so it, this hadn't necessarily been a great day in the life of the Messiah. And so yet now he finds himself, I, maybe it's sunset, but it's late afternoon. The sun is, is there and, and he's standing on the shore. And so you, what I hope is that you can kind of picture that scene in your mind. Uh, Jesus is there on the shore of this lake and not just his disciples, like not just the twelve, and, and not just seventy or however many, but a very large crowd has gathered. The sun is hitting them in the face. It's this beautiful scene. You can, you can, you can feel the warmth of the sun there on the shore. You, know, if you, you, can, you can hear the water lapping against the shore of the boat, or the boat. Um, you get a sense of the excitement of the crowd, that they're pressing in around him made of all sorts of different types of people, people from all backgrounds, and they've gathered there in anticipation. Like they didn't just randomly show up there. They're there for a purpose. They came hoping 
for something. There's an energy to this. It's like the people lined up outside of a concert early. You know, they're waiting, waiting for the doors to open, waiting to get in in anticipation that something is going to happen. They think they have an idea of what that may be, but at the end of the day, there's this, there's this unknowing among them too, and so they're interested to see what's going to happen. And Jesus sits in a boat. That's an interesting little thing. He sits in the boat. He takes this posture of a teacher of that time, and he tells them the parable. And unlike many of his parables, he actually gives us an interpretation of this one. So I want you to look at that with me real quick, down in verse 13. This is where Jesus explains it. This is what we read. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So, so, so there it is, okay? In, in this first example of a parable, Jesus gives us this clear interpretation, at least of the elements at work in the parable. So let's identify these together, and, and then let's figure out what in the world this has to do with, with us here today. The, the seed that the sower is sowing is the Word. That's what it says. It's the Word. Jesus uses the same word here for Word in His interpretation that John uses in his first chapter of his Gospel to describe who Jesus is. Okay, It's the fullness of who Jesus is. It's the logos, the, the word, the message. It's the gospel of God. That's, that's the way you might interpret that word there. That what is being sown here is the gospel of God. Wherever he is, the sower is sowing. He is sowing the gospel, sowing the word of God. That's, that's what the seed is. So every time you hear seed, you're thinking gospel. You're thinking the word. Just the other day, I'm riding down the road and and I said the word gospel, and my son said, well, what does that mean? And I said good news, and he goes, well, what's the good news? And so then I, I thought, man, I've really done a bad job here uh, discipling. And so then I explained, right? Then we went through, well, this is what the gospel is. And then he filled in some of my gaps, which was really impressive. And so I, I, I had fatherly pride in that moment. But that's, that's what it's the gospel, that Jesus has come not just to hang out on the shore of the beach, but that he has come for a purpose. He has come to redeem this fallen world. <laughs> and then he gives us an interpretation of the four types of soils that are mentioned here, right? The first is what he calls the path. The path is the trampled ground. It's the place that has been set apart as the walkway. Uh, for the first couple of years that we were at uh, the University of South Carolina, uh, there were all these dirt paths all over campus. Uh, they, were, they were just, and, and there was no like rhyme or reason to them. They were just kind of the shortcuts. They were the areas that the students had determined this is the way that we are going to go. Like the sidewalk goes this way and that's fine, but really this angle works a little better for us. And so over years and years, it just got trampled to the point where it was just this, it was this dirt track and they tried putting up barriers and stuff and, and to try and redirect, but our rebellious hearts, you know, we just couldn't, we couldn't abide by that. And so eventually the university made one of the most brilliant decisions they've ever made. They came in and they just put brick pavers everywhere that the students had determined that the pathways should be. That's the path, okay? It's the part where nothing's going to grow. 
And, and we don't even anticipate that something will grow. And in fact, we just pave over it because there's no, there's no redeeming it. It's, just, it's dead. It's broken. It's, it, cannot be, it cannot be healed. That's this area. That's the path. Jesus says that these are the ones who, who uh, to use His language, who do not have ears to hear. That you could preach a thousand sermons. That you could go to the most uh, powerful evangelism classes and learn the best methodology you could ever learn. And at the end of the day, they're still not going to hear the gospel because they do not have ears to hear it. They are deaf to the message. The word is preached, but it cannot be received. It's not an option because their eyes are still blind. Their ears are still deaf and their souls are dead to the world. And so it never takes. It It just rests on the surface long enough for a bird to come down scoop it up and and take it away. That's the first soil. That's the path. The second one is what Jesus calls the rocky ground. And what we see there is is that the rocky ground is lacking in depth. And so what happens is the seed falls onto the rocky ground and then it quickly springs up. The the, the growth is quick. We we see this type of thing a lot in our our area of the state because we live in a part that is essentially rock and red clay. That's what we have around here. And so a lot of new houses, they go and they throw seed out there and it grows up real quick and then summer in South Carolina hits and there's no, there's no grass anymore because there's no roots, because there's no depth. That's exactly what Jesus says here. In fact, He describes it as being scorched and withering. Down in verse 17, Jesus describes this type of person as having no root in them. <clears throat> so they receive it. They like it. Like they sit in here and they go, yeah, this sounds good. I, I like this. It, it sounds good to them. And so they listen and they even begin to, to adapt to it in some sort of external way. That's what the rocky ground looks like, but it remains superficial. Okay, No, no more than behavioral. Now, perhaps they start attending a church for a while, right? Because that's what people do. They go, then they have to commit an hour each week to going and doing this new activity. So they, they go to church for a while. They, they start using words like grace, right? Those, those become popular words very quickly. And maybe they start calling each other things like brother and sister. And, you know, when things go well for them, it's not they're having a good day. All of a sudden they're blessed. Like this is the type of superficial thing that happens on the rocky ground. But it's when things start to go badly for them that we see the lack of true depth. You see, the Word has not changed their desires. It has not impacted their conviction of their sin. It has not reordered their priorities. It hasn't changed their budget, and their orange and garnet idols are still standing firmly in place. You see, for this man, for the rocky ground, forgiveness is something that that often remains something that they want to receive, but they are very, very hesitant to give. Their trust and faith are still limited to what they believe that they can control. And as long as business is good and nobody is sick, Jesus is their boy, okay? They are happy. But the rocky ground does not produce fruit. And they eventually, when trials and when tribulations arise, as they always will, they, they fall away. That's the second one. That's the rocky ground. The third soil that Jesus mentioned, he, he describes as being among thorns. Somewhat like the rocky ground, we see, that, we see some superficial change begin to take place. There's a measure of growth. The seed does crack open. It begins to sprout. But for this man, the thorns also grow up around it. And what Jesus says is that the thorns grew up 
and choked it, and it yielded no grain. That's what he says. The thorns are described down in verse 19 as the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Okay, so this person has... He likes this whole idea of worship. But they really, really like the idea of success. And so we see that outlined in this passage. Jesus mentioned specifically the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of riches. So I, so I want to worship God. I want to give my life to Him, but I really want my kid to be the star athlete. And so while I would love to be there on Sunday, I'm sorry, I've got to do travel ball for the next 18 years in hopes that he signs a partial scholarship to a major university because you ain't going to a full ride for baseball these days. I hate to tell all these dads that football gets it all, okay? So that, that's, if you have friends, just encourage them. You're wasting your money. That's not a sound investment. You'd be better off to just pay for them to go to school. Um, that, that, but that's, that's the desire. They, wanna, they want the dream. They want the whole thing. They, I, I want to worship God, but I overcommit myself to every possible organization in hopes of receiving some recognition. In hopes that someone would just think that, man, that guy really does a good job in this life. He serves everyone. But ultimately, it's for himself. Ultimately, it's for itself. I'd love to support the work of global evangelism, but that new iPhone is sick. I mean, it's like you just look at it and it works. I've got to have, I mean, I would love to give to global missions, but at the end of the day, I need my text messages to be answered with a retinal scan. I don't have time to serve the church, but I have 10 hours to commit tailgating and watching football on a Saturday. I can't give to the church because finances are tight because I have to drive the best car, overpay to be in the best neighborhood, and sit in better seats next season because we are going to be good, right? Kent Hughes calls this buying things that you do not need to impress people you do not like with money that you do not have. Jim Boyce calls this type of soil the strangled heart. It's the strangled heart. I don't know why, but the, that, that brings something visceral to my mind, the idea of being strangled. It's, it's choked by the things of this world. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. When we first started hosting things at our home, I, I, I'm a little bit OCD about people. We live out in the woods, and so I don't like people to, especially like young college students, have to walk to their cars in the dark. And so I went, and Laurie can probably tell you the spectacle this was for a couple of Saturdays, and I ran wire underground, and I, I put lights and trees all over the place. And, and I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm OCD about these. So like, I did it right, okay? I'm like digging the trench, running the wire up the back of the tree so nobody could see it, and, and then mount the light on the other side, and it would illuminate these specific areas where particularly our young college girls would be walking out at night from our house. And, and, uh, and so I would use staples and tack it to the back of the tree so it would be super neat, right? So it would look really, really good. And, uh, and, one, and two years ago, we're standing out there uh, at, at uh, an oyster roast like we had just a few months ago, and... Uh, and all of a sudden, these sparks start shooting from the trees, which is not good, right? That's, we all agree, that's not supposed to, that's not pyrotechnics uh, being planned. That is a problem for me. And, uh, and so it just kept going. And so then, you know, as guys, we're sitting there going, this is pretty awesome, actually. I mean, uh, look at this. And, uh, but it's just raining sparks down. And then I'm thinking, uh, I'm going to catch the woods on fire. This is going to go badly for, it's going to get way worse. And so, uh, but then it eventually just severed all, all the way together. Uh, the wire broke where it had been <laughs> burning, and, um, and the light went off. 
And, and so what had happened was, uh, I, I, had, I had nailed this wire to these young hardwood trees. And as they continued to grow, it was growth that we couldn't even see. You know, it was so subtle. It was just fractions of an inch. That wire that was stapled began to get pinched tighter and tighter and tighter against that metal staple, which not great for electricity. And so eventually it choked it out to the point where it's, it, it welded the two together and finally it just broke up. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about being choked out by the deceitfulness of riches, by the cares of this world. This is stuff that we don't even notice happening in our lives. This isn't you walking out of a grocery store and and running into an an old friend and all of a sudden you're a crack addict. That's not the type of thing that we're talking about. We're talking about all of a sudden my, my wife and my children become idols to me and I don't even recognize it. All of a sudden having the right things in my world becomes an ultimate thing for me rather than a secondary thing. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Just like that wire going up the back of that tree, it was choked out over time. It was subtle. They don't even see it coming. That's the idea here. It happens over time. The pressure builds. We're choked out because of the cares of this world begin to take place of the Word in our hearts. That's the third. That's the thorns. The fourth is what Jesus simply calls the good soil. These are the ones who hear the word. They receive it. It sinks deep into their soul, like into their being, and they begin to bear fruit. And in fact, Jesus describes it as sort of exponential growth. He says it's, it's as 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. What he's saying is it grows and it grows and it grows. It grows beyond even our ability to understand how much growth it is. It's just spreading out. There's fruit everywhere. If you've ever seen sort of the uprooted tree, you know, the hurricane comes through and uproots the tree, and you can actually see some fraction of the root system underneath that tree. You have an idea of what's really at work there, how intricate and how deep and how, how that system of limbs and branches that we see actually pales in comparison to the, to the system of roots that is growing throughout the earth. That's the 30-fold. That's the 60-fold. That's a 100-fold. Uh, the this is a lot like what we see when a spiritual leader goes home to be with the Lord. Uh, just, just a few weeks ago, uh, R.C. Sproul, the famous teacher of Reformed theology, in fact, I don't, I don't know that there's a single person who I've listened to or read more uh, than that man in my entire, uh, in, in all of the formal theological training and all of my just personal reading, R.C. Sproul was this guy who's influenced millions and millions of people. His roots were so deep in the Word, and it spread so wide that when he went home to be with the Lord, we heard just testimony after testimony of people going, oh, that was the first Bible study I ever did in college, or that was the one my women's group did when we were, and that was the one my men's study did, and that's the, he just had this reach that had, that had borne fruit because he was willing to step out in faith and to put it out there, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's what it looks like. The good soil is cultivated. It is impacted in a powerful way such that it never, it's never the same because of the change in the growth. That's the good soil. And, but what does all this have to do with us? Um, with those things in mind, there are three things I want us to see in this passage. Here's the first. The first is that all of the soils begin as passive. 
all of the soils began as passive. Jesus uses this as an example in this agrarian society, so they would have understood this probably a little more than we do. When I want bread, I go to the grocery store. When they wanted bread, they planted some stuff, waited for it to grow, and they made bread. This is it's a little bit different, but this was a common farming method. Okay, In fact, this is really still a common farming method today. The difference is that they would sow the seeds and then they would till up the ground. Then they would plow it in, okay? And so they often didn't know where the path was exactly. They didn't know where the rocky ground was exactly. They just cast the seed everywhere and then came through and tilled it or, or plowed it up as they could. But the soil, you see, is static in the whole equation. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything to prepare itself. It doesn't cry out, please throw seed on me. It's not. It's just there. <coughs> All the soils from the path all the way to the good soil, are passive. They don't, and they don't get to choose which soil they are either. And that should remind us of how Jesus closes out this parable there, there on the shore. Right there in verse 9, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that means that there are some, there are some on that shore, there are some maybe here today, there are some in our world who do not have ears to hear yet. I always like to say yet. As long as they're still breathing, there's a chance. Paul talks about how apart from Christ, we're dead men. You see, dead men are passive. They have no control. They don't have a say. Dead men are helpless and cannot do anything for themselves. And Paul says that's how all of us start out spiritually. That's our factory setting, our default position, okay? We come from the womb dead spiritually. We start out dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he continues. Thank God that he continues, by the way. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then he reminds us that by grace you have been saved. We have been made alive in Christ. We have been made alive in order to hear. In his early ministry, Jesus was approached by some of, his, uh, some of the disciples of John the Baptist. And, and they asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And he responds, this is in Matthew 11, this is what he says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You, you see what he's doing there? He's pointing them, he's pointing John's disciples to the true sower. And he's reminding them that he is the one who can turn something passive into something active. He can take what is static and he can make it dynamic. He takes what is dead and he makes it alive. It is only by his grace that we could ever claim to be those with ears to hear. That's the first. The second thing, the second thing is that it is not for us to discern who is what type of soil. It is not for us to label who is what type of soil. It's not our job to label anyone as the path. It's not our job to say, well, that guy's rocky ground. That over there, that guy's in the thorns. We don't have, that's not part of the church management system. We don't have you labeled by which type of soil we think you are. That's not the way, that's not our job. The sower in the parable hits all four of the soils, and he does it consistently. The sower is indiscriminate. Our job is simply to be faithful to the commission of Jesus Christ. 
in the parable and in life. He is certainly, Jesus is certainly the chief sower. He is the Word. But who are we to emulate in the parable? You see, the call to action is not to point out different types of soil, but to sow the Word that we have been given. And if we do that, we will be indiscriminate as we cast that seed. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 12, that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. And then Galatians 3, he says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it is never our job, please hear me, it is never our job to decide who gets to hear. It is our job to give everyone, everyone the opportunity. And that brings us to the third thing. Sowing is intentional. Listen, you, you, this is about as elementary as it gets, but you do not end up with a bag of seed on your waist uh, just randomly. You don't end up standing in some particular field just because. And you don't end up sowing. Sowing the Word in our own lives and in this world must and shall be an intentional activity. Remember how the soil was passive? Like, like that was you, okay? You were passive. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body. But in Christ, in Christ, that's not you anymore. You're no longer that person. If, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your eternal life, you are a redeemed child of the living God. You have been adopted into His family. And this is what he says, that you may be, this is what Paul told the Philippians, that you may be blameless and innocent, that you may be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, in Christ you have been given the Word. You have the seed to sow. You don't need courses. You don't need a bunch of classes on how to do this well. You don't need a scheme or some sort of gimmick. You don't need to start a sports league. You don't need to. You can just do this in your. In fact, you can begin in your own home. You can begin in your own heart, sowing the seed of the word. That's a, usually a good place to start. You have been given the seed to sow, and wherever you find yourself is the field in which you have been called to engage in that work. We don't need to overcomplicate this. You don't need to think third world. You don't need to think uh, next door. Just think wherever I am. That's where I've been sent. That is the field in which God has called me to sow the word. And you have been placed there. But you have to sow the seed. Like You have to engage in that. It's one thing to have the seed. It's another thing to be in the field. It's a whole other thing to reach your hand in the bag and begin to throw it out. So you're going to have to open your mouth to do that. You're going to have to engage in the ministry at some point or you're just a guy in a field with a bag, which honestly looks a little weird. And maybe that's why the church looks so weird to the world today. We stand there claiming to have this bag of seed with all this goodness 
and we stand in the midst of the field and we refuse to share it. We refuse to throw it. We refuse to sow the seed. You have to do that, not passively, but intentionally. And listen, you will find yourself in difficult areas. You, you will. You will come across hard-pressed paths. You will come across rocky areas. You will find yourself in the midst of fields of thorns trying to choke out the world. But you will also find good soil. And in those people, what we're told is that the Spirit will produce grain, fruit. He will bring about fruit from that labor 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. You see, you and I have to join Him in that work. Let's scatter the Word in every sphere of our own existence, knowing that God has placed us in that field for a purpose. Again, we've said that as a vision statement for this church, that we're joining God in the renewal of all things. That's how you join God in the renewal of all things. You scatter that seed. Let's pray.